Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, and I am joined here with my special guest, who I'll say more about in just a moment, Neil Shenvey. Neil and I live in the same state of North Carolina, and I've followed Neil and stuff he's written online for a long time. Well, several years, and uh, we've emailed here or there, but we haven't had the chance to be in the same place at the same time. So this is the closest we've been, at least virtually, in the same place at the same time. So I'm looking forward to having a wide-ranging conversation with Neil in just a moment. And fittingly, Crossway, our regular sponsor for Life and Books and Everything, has a new book. And we are going to spend some time talking about this book, among other things, New Crossway book by none other than Neil on Why Believe, A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. And uh, at 250 pages, it is a real nice apologetics book that covers a variety of issues, the historicity, the, the resurrection, can you trust the Bible, some of the philosophical objections to Christianity, talks about God and revelation, the uniqueness of Christianity, the doctrine of sin. One of the things Neil explains in there is he doesn't try to get, uh, I don't want to say it would be sidetracked, but he doesn't go down trying to explain Christian views of sexuality, marriage, and gender, though we're going to hear that he's working on a book that does talk about all of those issues. But this book, Why Believe, is a book that you could give to high school student, a college student, you could give to elders in your church, pastors could benefit from it as well. What I appreciate about it is it's pulling together a lot of the common sorts of issues that you would find in apologetics books. It's not a philosophical book in terms of debating how we should do apologetics, but it's telling us how to give some reasoned answers to these questions. And we'll uh, I'll be able to ask Neil more about that in just a moment. So thank you, Crossway. So Neil, welcome to Life and Books and Everything. Glad to have you here. So you are, it seems, a super smart guy. You got a PhD <laughs> from Cal Berkeley, worked as a research scientist at Yale and Duke. You've published all sorts of peer-reviewed papers, and you homeschool your four children, which is maybe the, the biggest accomplishment <laughs> of all. So You've written a lot about critical race theory and critical theory, and now you got this book on apologetics, but that's not your academic background. Tell us about yourself, how you became a Christian, and a little bit about what your academic degree and work was in prior to doing all of this. Sure. Well, thank you so much, for Kevin, for inviting me. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, my, my training is in theoretical chemistry. So people hear chemistry, they think, Maybe you think Walter White from Breaking Bad or Test Tubes Bunsen Burners, and I say, no, I'm a theorist. So think more like Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory. But I have to confess, I haven't seen either of those shows ever, not one episode. So yeah, neither I'm just have going, I, but I've heard I'm just of going them. based on what I've heard about those shows. But I, I Or think, how about this? I have seen uh, A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe, where I he's scrawling that. equations uh, in his dorm room window at Princeton, actually, which is where I did undergraduate. But that's what I do. I, I'm a theorist by training. So I went to Princeton as an undergraduate and then got a PhD at UC Berkeley. And it was really, it's really pencil and paper uh, 
trying to derive the properties of atoms and molecules from the basic principles of physics. Um, so that's what I, my training is in. I became a Christian actually at Berkeley. I talk about this in the book a little bit. Three major factors were uh, reading C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, which I got mm. for free at a campus book table run by crew. I just grabbed it as a non-Christian freshman, I think, and they never saw hide nor hair of me for four years. But I could not stop reading the book. It was so insightful. And even as a non-Christian, I asked, how could he know mm. so much about my life, my psychology, wow. what went on in my heart? And of course, the answer is that C.S. Lewis, as a Christian, was plugged into a reality that I was not even aware of. So uh, that was one factor. Another factor was meeting my future wife, Christina, who was a missionary kid at Princeton. Uh, and she was at Princeton with, uh, with me in the same class, which was the top student in chemistry in our class, got the highest score on our organic chemistry uh, class as a freshman, which is <laughs> super impressive. Anyway, uh, I met her, and she was the, really the first genuine Christian that I ever knew really well. And so just seeing her life and seeing how different she was, uh, was great for me. And then we actually went to graduate school together at UC Berkeley, and I began going to church with her, and I just heard the gospel there. And and more than that, I saw that people in the congregation were my professors. So I had my my quantum physics professor as a first year graduate student sang in the choir, mm, and he wow. told us later in class he would wear his um, his first pres uh, sweatshirt, first Presbyterian church, church of Berkeley sweatshirt to class occasionally. And he told me us later at like a graduate Christian fellowship, that was intentional. It was his way of saying, I'm a Christian. If you want to talk to me about it, yeah. you're welcome to. Just an invitation to do that. So those three things combined to basically make me think I have to take these ideas seriously. And for me, the big obstacle was that I was spiritual but not religious. And I thought I had got all figured out and confronting the idea that what if Jesus actually was the son of God? Hmm. He wasn't just a cool guy or a good moral teacher. And if that's true, then I have to turn from all of my carefully constructed build-a-bear spirituality and embrace this historic faith. And actually, I didn't like that at the time. I realized because that would mean I'm, I'd have to humble myself and admit that I was not this academic, brilliant superstar. I was actually like a child entering mm. God's kingdom. But I did. I just said to God, well, I'll, you know, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then I'll follow him. And, you know, he brought me into the into the kingdom. And you had no background in Christianity prior to that? Not really. Um, my mom was raised as Catholic, but then we'd never, whenever went to church, my dad uh, was Hindu, but they kind of were just not anything. Very moral, wonderful parents, um, but they, they're just not um, religious in any sense. And so we, I think they tried to read us sort of spiritual books like the Bible and some ancient, you know, Indian mythology, just to give me some kind of formal religious something exposure, but it never really took. So, you know, I was, I was very clueless about anything religious. Uh, I'm going to ask what the title of your theoretical chemistry dissertation was. Uh, I had a, when I was at my last church in East Lansing, and we had a, you know, lots of grad students there from Michigan State, and we had a friend in our small group, and he was doing a PhD in mathematics, and we'd always ask him, you know, what are you, what's your dissertation? And he would hem and haw, <laughs> you know, I, I did history, and you can say, oh, I studied John Witherspoon, and people say, oh, who's that? And you can understand it, and he would sure. always say, you know, he's a humble guy, he's like, ah, I just 
you know, you kind of, you wouldn't understand it. Well, just try us. We're smart people. And sure enough, we didn't understand it. It was something about imaginary numbers or something very complicated. So give us your very complicated title. Well, that's not complicated. There's a funny story behind that. So the title of my dissertation was Topics in Quantum Computation. Okay. And Sounds quantum like a computation just means, yeah, we were trying to build, there's a whole project, an enterprise in academia broadly, trying to build computers that are based not on normal physics, but on quantum physics. So they're, they're, they're using the laws of quantum mechanics rather than the laws of classical Newtonian mechanics. Anyway, uh, but basically my dissertation was just a set of all of my papers stapled together. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I, if you look at my actual publication record, it's incredibly... Uh, diverse would be a nice way to put it. I, I, maybe just it's like a, a mutt. It's like a combination of all these yeah. random areas within quantum mechanics. And so I just had my, my advisor let me staple, take my five or so papers I'd written at the time, just kind of stick them together and write some intermediate material. And that was my dissertation. And and do you still do work in that area? Are you Are you teaching? Are you writing in the area of quantum mechanics or theoretical chemistry? No, I, I not not really. I, every night before I go to bed, I think about a problem I've been working on in spin physics for the last seventeen years, but it helps put me to sleep. But other than that, I don't really do. And occasionally, I get when the when the urge takes me, I go to a whiteboard at like my local homeschool co-op when no one's watching. And I write down equations and try to solve them. Uh, but no, I'm not doing research actively right now. And then, how did you become interested in these other topics, which I think you're you're most well known for? And did you just start writing and tweeting and blogging and reading? You know, you're one of these guys, I don't want to say it's always a meritocracy, but you just kept reading and writing and writing. And people seemed like in the last, I don't know how many years, five, six years, say, oh, this guy's done his homework. He's thoughtful on this. He doesn't seem like he's uh, staying up at night seething with anger toward everybody. He seems like a pretty normal guy. I want to hear what he has to say. How did this all start? And have you been surprised how you've become looked at as an expert in something that was completely different from your training? Yeah, it's really amazing story of God's providence. So it goes back to, I think, 2015 or so. So I got interested in apologetics as a grad student. So I became a Christian. And right away at Berkeley, I got plugged into a, a campus apologetics ministry that was very active partnering with atheist students, trying to bring them together with Christians to talk about the big issues of mm. life. So right away, I began reading apologetics. At, when I was at Yale, I was invited to debate an atheist Yale student, a Yale graduate, about Christianity. So that got me interested in reading primary sources. So he recommended some books that I should read by atheist authors. And so I did a lot of that. And that's actually, I think, again, providentially been my approach to critical theory as well, reading the primary sources. Don't read what so-and-so says about this source, but read the source itself. Uh, but so doing all that, I was interested in apologetics. I was writing my current book, Why I Believe, at the time. And providentially, a, a mutual friend connected me with my collaborator, Dr. Pat Sawyer, who's a faculty member at UNCG, whose PhD is in education and cultural studies. Mm -hmm. So he's doing critical theory at a professional level. And But he, we were introduced because we both had a passion for apologetics. So then we just met and we're chatting on email and it was 2015 or 2016, I think. And 
I had the sense that something was going on in our culture and even in the evangelical church around issues of race, Black Lives Matter, gender, sexuality. I couldn't put my finger on what it was, though. So when I heard what Pat was doing professionally, I said, that sounds familiar. I think I'm seeing these ideas popping up in evangelical circles. And Pat just had his mind blown. He was like, there's no way, there is no way that biblically oriented Christians are embracing these ideas. They're so patently false and unbiblical. And I said, no, really, I really think you should take a look at some of these things I'm reading. Mm. And we went back and forth, and eventually he's like, no, actually, you are right. You know, he got involved in this field to share the gospel with his progressive secular colleagues. He never thought he'd be trying to explain to the church why these ideas were so dangerous. So we met that way, and then we began collaborating. We've written a number of articles on all kinds of topics. Uh, we've written some uh, I've written some peer-reviewed articles um, mm-hmm. on critical theory. I have a new one coming out in a law legal journal, uh, written with a co-authored with a lawyer on critical race theory. So I um, I have done a lot of reading, but I've also tried to try to connect with people who are trained in these areas who can you know make sure that I'm not just spouting off punditry. Right, right. I had, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I had lunch when Pat was here in Charlotte and really enjoyed mm-hmm. that. Really dear guy. He's not, he's sort of halfway between where you and I are. Yeah. Durham, Charlotte, Greensboro. He made it sound like uh, that Neil Shenvey is uh, a, a genius who just reads things and then he plays some video games, then he tweets some things, then he homeschools his kids, and then he reads some more stuff, and then he writes things. What What's, what's a day in the life of... Mr. Dr. Shinvi. I get up 6.30 with the kids, my youngest on the dot, 6.30, he's out of bed. Um, And so we start homeschool at 7.30. Uh, My homeschool, people ask me, what's your curriculum? I say Khan Academy. We just, we Uh, do a lot of math. I'm a STEM guy, obviously. So if it were up to me, I would teach them nothing but science, math, and and writing, actually. I emphasize, you know, the three R's, essentially. But we're in a homeschool co-op called Classical Conversations, which is, I think, very heavily invested in the humanities. Uh, And that's good for me because it balances me out. If it were up to me, the kids would not be learning any, no geography. They can learn that later when they're in grad school. But (laughs) it's good because they forced me to teach them World history, Latin, English grammar, things that I would probably push to the side. So it's a great balance for me to have that accountability. So I want to, before we get into all this sort of stuff and talk about your book and talk about critical theory, uh, you did this project, I don't know how many months ago it is, and it it seemed to be using some of your your STEM background, but you did this massive study of evangelical Twitter. Oh, yeah, that's right. uh, Studying, you know, I, I didn't track with all of the the madness behind the curtain, but you are looking at who follows who and who has shared followers or shared retweets or likes. And you had this whole conceptual map. It was really fascinating and how it was laid out. Can you tell us what you did? And it seemed to me you were sort of trying to link what are some of the tribes within evangelical Twitter. What did you do and what did you find out? Was any was it just a curiosity or did you come away with that thinking this is really useful in helping me understand what's going on out there. So it was, it was funny because people got really worked up about this project that I was working on. And it was totally just, for me, a f- curiosity. So um, 
I was bored. I was like, I should do something besides play video games with my free time. So I was like, I will learn a new computer language. So the language called R, which is very popular for mathematics. I hadn't learned it. I was like, oh, I'll learn R. And then I also, <laughs> I, I, I remembered back uh, Captain America 2, The Winter Soldier, the Marvel movie. One of the plot devices is that they divide this algorithm to comb the internet and figure out people's, you know, figure out information about people based on what they tweet and they're buying all these other information out there in the public realm that they've put there. You can use the, the, the evil villains use that in the movie to identify targets. So, so you're thought, one of the yeah, evil villains. I'm not. Well, no, that, the, <laughs> I was like, well, can we just, that's true. There's all this information out there. People put it out there on social media voluntarily. Can you really gain information from the tweets that they, all these things that they tweet? And so I was like, well, I'll learn R, and at the same time, I will figure out how to data mine, how to mine data from the internet like Twitter. And so I learned all of that, I learned the language, I found a library that allowed me to download data from Twitter, and I thought, what can I do with this? And so I thought a, a cool idea would be, could I build a conceptual map of evangelical Twitter. So I put in Twitter users who, I, who people just name random people that they are, are quote-unquote evangelical or Christian Twitter. I put them into this algorithm, and it'll identify how many shared followers they have with every other user that I've identified. So for example, I'd put you in. I would put Albert Moeller in. I would put uh, you know maybe some progressive Christians, and i put all of you into this map. And then the, I'd let the computer decide how close your accounts were, meaning how mm -hmm. many people followed both of like you and Al Mohler or Al Mohler and uh, Jim Wallace, the you know right. progressive Christian uh, sojourners. So I'd put that all in the computer and I'd let it decide whose accounts had the, had the similar profile. And when you do that, it's, in, it's incredible. So it, it, it created this map and it would link people, and sometimes you'd be like, oh, yeah, obviously, these two guys are both presidents of SBC seminaries. Obviously, they look very similar in their followers. But then it would link certain people, and I was like, this makes no sense. Why would it link this guy and this guy, or this woman and this man? And then I would tweet the map out, and the people would say, oh, that's, yeah, that's true. These two people, the reason they're linked is because they did a podcast together t 10 years ago. Mm. And they have a lot of mutual followers, but now they're diverged theologically, but on the Twitter footprint looks the same. Anyway, so there are all these amazing connections, and yet you did see a lot of, I wouldn't say tribalism, but you saw accounts that clearly fit, the, you know, in your intuitive idea of, oh, yeah, it makes sense that so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so look the same on Twitter. Anyway, I, I, people got, and then I, the other thing I did that really set people off was, I said, okay, is this all just an artifact of the computer? Is it seeing things that aren't really there? Or are there actual ideological similarities between these accounts? So what I did was also, I would say, look at a given person's followers. Mm. How many of their followers have pronouns in their bio? Yeah. How many of their followers have MAGA hashtags in their bio? And you could see that certain regions of the map were like, here's MAGA land, here's, here's pronoun land. And again, there's no I'm not making a value judgment. I'm just saying, yeah, there are real tribes within even evangelical Twitter that you can identify. The computer itself spits them out. Anyway, that's all I was doing. But people 
thought it was somehow in a nefarious evil plan that was not my intention uh where can people go to find this or to find the map i mean i've forgotten much about it but uh, it's on my website if you if you google neil shenvy twitter map you'll probably find it on google somewhere (laughs) okay it was just it was just for fun well it was really interesting as i recall i was quite low on the percentage of followers with pronouns I, yeah, you and John MacArthur, I think, were like point zero zero one percent. Okay, all right. I think I was fairly low on the MAGA hashtag, too, but yeah, I don't actually, remember. Yeah, that was surprising. There were very few MAGA, you know, people on the evangelical. Like, like the highest percentage, I think, was like some account had like point five percent of their followers had MAGA in their bios, whereas pronouns were like some accounts had, you know, 10% of their followers had pronouns. So it's a, it was, you know, or, or Black Lives Matter hashtags. Those were actually quite common right. among in some regions of the map. As I recall, the to look at the map, it made intuitive sense. I mean, you mm-hmm. saw sort of a, a grouping of, say, you know, Kristen Dumay and Beth Allison Barr and those sort of people. And then you, you might see Vody and John MacArthur and right. G3 kind of. And then you would see Ligon and Kevin and, I mean, T4G sort of world. And there would you could it wasn't as simple as saying a right to left spectrum. Yeah. But for the most part, people clustered where you kind of thought, were there any real surprises with how people landed? Again, not making a value judgment. It's not, doesn't mean they agree with all these people. It's just saying something about the people that want to follow a number, the same sorts of people. Were there any big surprises? The only, yeah, the real big surprise was that, um, that Mark Driscoll and John Piper were closely, not closely linked, they were, they were probably loosely linked, And but one of the reasons is I realized there were actually a number of really humongous accounts, yeah, that's like right. Driscoll and Piper and Tim Keller, they, uh-huh. were just, they were just so big that they looked like other big accounts. If, you, if you're big enough, people follow you just because you're big. They don't follow you because they agree with you. They say, oh yeah, everybody follows this guy because he's huge. Uh, so that's, again, that makes sense but it's also not telling you much about their beliefs. They're just, they just happen to be big and they get grouped with people like Beth Moore and other people that have these million follower accounts. Yeah, people follow her not because they agree with her, but because everyone else does. Yeah, right. There's, there's the evangelical accounts that are 40, 50,000. That's mm-hmm. a lot of people. And then the 100 to 200. And then, yeah, the million. Keller, yeah. Piper, right. Beth Moore that are in the million. Well, mm-hmm. interesting. I mean, when I'm bored... You know, maybe Neil go out on a run or something or watch a baseball game or learn a lang- a new computer language. Well, I did, and then people got upset. They got triggered. I just tried to learn R. You just tried My to goodness. learn R. Okay, well, good for you. So tell us about why we believe a reasoned approach to Christianity. Are you trying to get into intra-evangelical apologetic debates about classical apologetics or Vantillian apologetics? What are you trying to do in this book? So uh, this book came out of actually a book table that I helped with at Yale. So at because I was heavily impacted by receiving a copy of Lewis's Screwtape Letters as a freshman at Princeton from a crew book table, because of that, when I went to Yale as a postdoc, I helped with a crew book table at Yale that was handing out, again, free books at their main freshman dining hall. And one of the books that we handed out, I bought a box of Tim Keller's Reason for God, mm. and I handed them out. And I told the people that were working with me, I said, hey, you know, some people just grab the book, walk away, you don't see them again. I said, don't worry about that. I did that. You never know what God will do you know, with any, anything that you do, you know, providentially. Right. And 
I used to pass out Bibles at Berkeley, and the, the verse in the front cover was Isaiah 58, I think. I don't remember the verse. You'll know it. But uh, it was that, you know, the word that goes out of my mouth will not return to me void. It will accomplish right. the purpose for which I have. And that was my, again, I was like, this is why we give Bibles out. We give out books because God will use them to do his purposes, fulfill his purposes. So anyway, so I was giving out these copies of Reason for God, but I was like, I can't keep, this is getting expensive. I can't afford to buy (laughs) hundreds of copies of this book and give them away. So I thought maybe I will write a book and I can just self-publish it and give it away for free. But my goal was just to get a book that I could give out that would be, um, so I wanted several things. Number one, I wanted it to be accessible. I wanted it to be the kind of book I could give to a motivated high school student. Mm-hmm. It would get something from it. But then I also wanted it to be intellectual. This is a hard mm-hmm. balance to strike. I, there are books that I really think are good, helpful books. Like a great example is Jay Werner Wallace's book, Cold Case Christianity, where I think the content is very helpful and good. But the book itself contains hand-drawn cartoons. Yeah. And if I gave, just for, for help, to help people understand these ideas, but if I gave that book to a Nobel laureate theoretical chemistry professor at Duke, they would take one look at the cartoons and say, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to read this book. I'm embarrassed to read this book. Exactly. Yeah. Which, even though, even though if you gave it a chance, you'd say, oh, this is actually really good. So I wanted to write a book that just immediately strikes you as a book written at, by someone who's done their homework. So my book is full of footnotes, not endnotes. It contains heavy interaction with atheist scholars, people like Bart Ehrman, Paula Fredrickson, Sean Carroll, Vic Stanger, Jerry Coyne, you know, people mm-hmm. that are have PhDs, they're scholars, they're scientists, they're uh, biblical studies uh, folks. And so you read the book and, you know, I think I cite, I think I looked it up, I think the number one most cited author in the book is C.S. Lewis. Number two is Richard Dawkins. Mm. So I've clearly, people reading it hopefully will say, this is someone who's read the other side and is giving me the best arguments for atheism and against Christianity in this very book. So that's, and I wanted that to, I wanted to be a book that your college student could Mm -hmm. hand to their professor and not feel embarrassed. Um, so that's you know, one accessible to intellectual. The other thing I wanted it to be was um, was gospel centered. So I didn't want to write a book about how some kind of God exists. I wanted to write a book that pointed people to Christianity. The the Christian God exists. The God of the Bible is, exists, and He calls you to repent and believe the gospel. So that's a big part of the book. Another point is comprehensive. I treat. Uh, you know, huge range of arguments, uh, the trilemma, you know, Jesus is either Lord, liar, mm-hmm. or lunatic. Did he rise from the dead? There's evidence that, yes, historical evidence, Jesus did rise from the dead. Does God exist? What kind of God exists? So how can we know that God exists? Can miracles happen? I wanted to respond to the, the most prominent objections to Christianity and to God's existence, like the problem of evil, evolution, divine hiddenness. And then I, I wanted to tie it all together by saying the gospel itself is the best argument for the truth of Christianity, that the gospel alone among the message of all world religions speaks directly to two humongous existential questions in our heart, which is, uh, what's my main problem, and how can that problem be solved? And so I argue, over the course of three chapters, that Christianity correctly identifies our main problem is sin and rebellion against God, and our main the only solution is redemption through Jesus. Uh, so again, it's comprehensive. And then finally, it's systematic. You can see one, two, three, four, five. I go uh-huh. through things very systematically. 
readers have told me that my scientific training really comes through in the book because I walk through arguments in a very linear fashion. I then respond, to, I give you objections to those arguments. I then respond to those objections. And so they, they've told me that it really does read like it's written by a scientist, which is true. So. Which is true. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that, uh, and this is why I think people have followed you and read your stuff, is you have that scientific background, but you write very clearly and very accessibly. So it is uh, an intellectual book and there are footnotes and you interact with these people, but anyone who reads the first 15 pages, they're not going to feel like uh, a theoretical chemist is talking down to me. There's a a very, in a good way, colloquial kind of conversational tone, even as you're talking about intellectual issues. So I think you're right. I think a, an, a motivated high school student could read this and a college student could give it to a professor who'd say, Oh, this is this guy's thoughtfully considered some of the objections and has responded to them. So I think you, you hit that sweet spot. Well, How, how do you think Neil about the task of apologetics? Do you see it mainly for Christians to be bolstered in their faith do you see it mainly for trying to prove something, or do you think, well, we can't really prove these things, but it helps to create plausibility structures for the non-Christian? There's lots of just conversation about the approach we take and the reason for apologetics. So how do you think about the task of apologetics itself? I think it's twofold. So I think it's both for Christians to strengthen our faith and also for non-Christians to challenge their assumptions about Christianity and to right. call them to repentance. Uh, and so I think it's, you don't have to play those against each other. I think they they both happen at the same time. And I do think I, you know, in terms of methodology, like, well, are you an evidentialist or classical right. apologist? I, I, I don't get into that in the book, obviously, yeah. but I would, I would personally classify myself as a soft presuppositionalist, meaning mm-hmm. that I'm not going to just ask by what standard for 10 chapters, but I am going to always uh, have an eye to people's assumptions, their presuppositions about reality. Do those make sense? Are they consistent with each other? And and that's, a lot of it flows from my theology. I, I am reformed in my, or I'm a reformed Baptist. I have to have, to, have the caveat when I'm talking to Presbyterians. But, uh, reformed. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Yes. Put it in scare quotes. That's right. For the people on YouTube, uh-huh. it's in scare quotes. I'm reformed in scare quotes. Oh, yes. But, the the point is that yeah I do think our our task is not to um, prove intellectually that God exists uh, because you know Romans one says we all know deep down mm-hmm. that God exists mm-hmm. and we suppress the truth and unrighteousness so the, our task is to reveal to people that they're living with this dark unspoken fear and hatred of God in their hearts that should be brought into the light and exposed, not in a nasty way, but in a way, hey, I can tell you the true story of reality that makes sense of all of these hopes and fears and hidden sins in your heart. And that ultimately is what, you know, will bring regeneration is the preaching of God's word. And so that's, again, that's why the last three chapters of the book are all about the gospel. Yeah, and I really like that because I I do think that is unique in this book that you're appealing to the conscience in a way. Mm -hmm. And we understand as Christians, even if non-Christians don't recognize it about themselves, they are made in the image of God. They do have eternity written on their hearts. They've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, but we ought to appeal to what we know is there, even if they don't know that that's there. And that's to appeal to this sense of 
something is wrong. Mm-hmm. Virtually everyone has some sense, whether it's our carbon footprint or <laughs> it's the food that we eat. There's something wrong in the universe. There's something. There's some way we need to be right with the universe or some maker of the universe. And so I really appreciate that you're you're giving people the gospel. Mm-hmm. You're telling people where this answer and how Christianity meets this deepest need. And and I also, you know, you use that phrase right there, soft presuppositionalism, which I think is a good way of describing it and resonates with what what I think is a a wise approach that on the one hand, we do realize people have presuppositions. We're not trying to say if I could just convince you of the unmoved mover and convince you of these five ways, then you go from here to theist to classical theist to Christian to Protestant. I can just reason you all the way down. We can just pretend that we just uh, I put the Bible behind my back and we just get there. That that sort of crude. I don't know if anyone actually does it like that, but right. that's not what we're doing. We understand we're trying to understand their own assumptions and show their incoherence. And yet, you know, you said it's not just ten chapters of by what standard and just telling people, well, you don't know God and your own beliefs are a leap of faith in themselves, and there you go. I think most people instinctively understand there's a place to say, hey, I I can't argue you into the faith. I'm not going to give you five reasons for the resurrection, and then you bow the knee to Christ. But Mm -hmm. I can show you that a lot of smart people have thought about these things, and there actually are really good reasons for believing that the Bible is trustworthy, for believing that God exists for believing that the resurrection happened, for understanding uh, the Canaanite genocide was not genocide, as we would use the term. There are reasoned, rational explanations Mm. for these things. I I use Turretin in my systematic theology class, and he has a number of guidelines for how we use reason. But one of the things he often says is, uh, Christianity is above reason, but it's not against reason. Mm -hmm. That is, reason... There are some things that look impossible to reason. Miracles look impossible to reason. So we don't let reason be the final standard of judging whether something is possible. But some Christians embrace that, and then they say, oh, well, Christianity then must be against reason. And sometimes Christians have a fideistic approach Mm -hmm. to Christianity. I just believe this because I believe it, and that's what I'm asking you to do. Well, that's not the way the Bible presents the material. That's not the way the Reformed tradition has has traditionally understood how to defend the faith. That w- it, It's not a compromise with the world to say, here's where our beliefs are rational, where there's good reason, where there's good evidence. Even Calvin will say, ultimately, you need the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit to convince you of these things. But then he goes on to say why we can trust the Bible, why there's a God, and I think you, you followed that same kind of approach in the book. Did you have any certain models in your head of how you wanted to look at this, or you just imbibed it from Lewis and reading a lot of other good stuff? Yeah, I think probably the latter. I think that I, I mean, I, one of the first apologetics books I ever read was John Frame's Apologetics to the Glory mm. of God, which just gave me, and it's mainly, basically all about frameworks, like what framework are you using? But he, I, I think I mean, he would absolutely qualify as a presuppositionalist. Right. But if you look at how he practically explains how that looks on the ground, it doesn't strike you. He's not asking by what standard, by what standard, by what, he's, he's actually laying out evidence. And then 
when the non-Christian says, well, well, I can't believe that because he's okay. When you say you can't believe that, let's look at your assumptions now. So he mm-hmm. goes, and actually, that's, I think, I, I again, methodologies are not my area of expertise by any means, but when I've looked at the way that presuppositionalists actually go about these conversations, I think many of them, even very hard presuppositionalists, do still lay out things like evidence and reason, and only when they get pushback, they say, well, now we have to turn to why you're rejecting right. the evidence. So again, I'm taking a similar approach. I just start with, well, look, here's the evidence. It seems pretty clear. And then when you meet resistance, like, oh, well, miracles just can't happen, though. Okay, now we have to step back and ask why you believe that, and does that make sense? So I think, again, that's that's not... It's not easy to put that into the category of are you doing evidentialism? Are you doing classical apologetics uh, right away? But I, so like I said I think that a category fits well. Greg Kokel is another one. Yeah, another Greg does sort of model. Work. Yeah, right. Where he's not. I don't think he'd call himself a presuppositionalist, but he also understands the real importance of assumptions and presuppositions that will inevitably influence how you interpret everything. So yeah, that's. I think it's it's not an uncommon approach um, from a lot of people from different quote unquote camps. Of apologetics. Great. So the book, once again, is Why We Believe a Reasoned Approach to Christianity by Crossway from Neil Shinvi. So check that out. I'm going to jump to our next topic in just a moment. I do want to mention uh, another book, The Pastor and the Modern World uh, by Westminster Seminary Press. If you haven't checked out Westminster Seminary Press, obviously it's connected to WTS. They, they're they doing a lot of good stuff, both uh, republishing classic works and some newer works. Uh, pastoral ministry has always been hard, but the stress, isolation, and conflict of recent years has been too much for many pastors, and they are burning out, quitting, resigning at an alarming rate. Often, they simply haven't been prepared to minister in the world as it really is. This is a short book. You'll find three short chapters by experienced pastor scholars that help you understand your context, your calling. So it's very short, and you can order a copy of The Pastor in the Modern World at wtsbooks.com or Reformation Heritage, Christian Book, Amazon. All right, Neil, I want to talk about critical theory. I have three objections that I want you to respond to. First, critical theory is just legal theory. It's just uh, an analytical tool for trying to understand how racism, and let's, I know critical theory is a broader topic, so Mm -hmm. let's just think right now critical race theory. It's not the same thing. It's a subset of a larger thing, but just critical race theory is just a legal theory. It's just for analyzing some texts, and it's just a hermeneutical approach to the past. That's all that it is. Agree or disagree? Why? Hard disagree. And the, the reason why, I would just say, listen to what critical race theorists themselves say about critical race mm-hmm. theory. So if you look at the number one most prominent text on critical race theory is Delgado and Stefan Chick's book, CRT. There you go. You have it. I have it. Open I've up read to it. what? Page, uh, uh, the, uh, the preface, I think it's page yeah. 11, XI of the preface. It's Angela Harris, who's a critical race theorist, and she says it used to be that critical race theory was this esoteric sparsely read legal theory, but today, this is like she's writing in, I think, first yep. edition was 1997. Today, it is read by sociologists, by philosophers, it's working into healthcare, it, it's read everywhere. 
and Delga and the authors Delga and Stefanczyk say the same thing. It's influencing all kinds of policy. It's in the government. It's in healthcare. It's in theology. Um, if you look at uh, uh, Kiara Bridges is a UC yep. Berkeley law professor. Her excellent book. It's really helpful as a as a, to understand CRT. It's called CRT a Primer, twenty nineteen. And she talks about just how influential CRT has become. In fact, in Delgado and Sivanchik's book, at the end of it, they say, and this is in t- 1997, I think it was first edition, third edition was in 2017, but they ask, wither critical race theory, what's going to happen to it in the future? They're writing this in 97, right. maybe. And they say one possibility is that it becomes, quote, the new civil yep, rights right. orthodoxy, right? And it's it's just in the water, and it's where you think everyone everyone might might one day think in terms of CRT without even knowing it. And I'd say that's where we are. So if you actually read what critical race theorists say, they will f- brag about how it's no longer just legal theory. It is absolutely being applied and used by all kinds of people. And so that again, actually, and then okay, here's the other thing I'll say: Taimon Klein and I. He has an MDiv from Westminster. He's a uh, as an uh, JD from Rutgers. So he's a, a lawyer and has a theology degree. We are publishing a forthcoming law review article on uh, the title is "What If CRT Were Quote Just a Legal hmm. Theory, a Christian Critique." It's a, it. You should read the article. It's accessible article, but it it begins with the the idea, this hypothetical idea. What if it were just legal theory? Right. And then examined only on those terms, it would still be totally incompatible with Christianity. Because, for example, I'm going to try to pull up some quotes, but critical race theorists um, deny that there is some universal abstract set of principles of morality or right and wrong that undergird the law. They straight up deny that. They think that law just is a way to enshrine the values of the white ruling class uh, to, to, to make those part of society and to you know, preserve white privilege. So here's Derek Bell, the godfather of critical race theory, writing in Crenshaw's anthology CRT, the key writings that shaped the movement. And she sa- he says this, precedent, it's a like legal precedent, mm-hmm. rights theory, and objectivity merely are formal rules that serve a covert, a hidden purpose. Even in the context of equality theory, they will never vindicate the legal rights of black Americans. And right. again, Delgado and Stefanczyk say that, uh, that CRT, unlike, it's a quote, unlike traditional civil rights, uh, which embraces incrementalism and step-by-step progress, Critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of constitutional law. So CRT rejects the idea that there's some, you know, objective, universal moral framework that is then supposed to be enacted and reflected in the law. They reject that view. They think law is just a mechanism for preserving white power. Uh, And again, that's, you can't, a Christian can't believe that law is just a mechanism of coercion because right. God literally gave a legal code to Israel. <laughs> there you go. Right off the bat, God gave Moses a legal code that was not just a way to, you know, to secure Israelite power. power. It, was, it was God's law. Uh, this is uh, from Critical Race Theory, the introduction. Yes, this is from the foreword, XVI. And it says, uh, critical race theory has exploded from, this is what you're referring to, from a narrow 
subspecialty of jurisprudence, chiefly of interest to academic lawyers, into a literature read in departments of education, cultural studies, English, sociology, comparative literature, political science, history, and anthropology around the country. We could add now around the world. It not only dares to treat race as central to the law and policy of the United States, it dares to look beyond the popular belief that getting rid of racism means simply getting rid of ignorance or encouraging everyone to get along. So not simply a legal theory. Here's second objection I want you to respond to. Look, we can't, nobody really knows. It's a massive topic. No one really knows what CRT is. Everyone just throws around CRT. They're slapping labels on it. Neil Shenvey, you don't even have a degree in this. (laughs) This isn't even your specialty. You don't even have a PhD. You don't really understand what it is. If you understood what it was and you were a real expert, you know that it's something different. So all of these Christians talking about it, no one really knows what it is. Yeah. So one thing I'd say is that uh, there are people out there who don't know what CRT is. Yeah, true. Who are just using it as a label, throwing it around at CRT. You know, the CRT is, is in the room with you right now. It's hiding. It's under my bed. Okay. There are people like that who are using it just as a shibboleth to say, are you woke or not? That said, uh, I have a, an article called What is Critical Race Theory on my website. And it is, there's zero commentary. It is about a 2,000 word article with nothing but quotes from it's primary very sources. I've, I've seen it yeah. many, many times. Encourage others to look at it. And it's, it's just quotes from primary sources by critical race theorists who are not just spouting off their own opinions. It's their list of the, the defining elements. That's a quote from Matsuda et al., Words That Wound. The defining elements of CRT. And it spans 30 years. I, I, one of the things I do is I'll, I don't just quote all these primary sources, these highly respected sources. So one of the articles I quote is Yasso's uh, Whose Culture Has Capital. It's been cited like 6,000 times. It's an tremendously important article. Uh, and she lists the, uh, the I think, the, the core tenets of critical race theory. But the point is, uh, I don't just cite all these prominent articles. I go back to the earliest collections of these defining elements. So uh, I said Matsuda et al.'s Words That Wound it was an anthology uh, with four co-editors, Matsuda, Lawrence, Crenshaw, and Delgado, who are all co-founders mm-hmm. of CRT. And it's written in 1993, which is literally four years after the movement sort of emerged in around 1989. And they list the defining elements of CRT. They give six points and if you look at those six points, they are constant over the next 30 years. Everywhere you turn, you'll find those those in the various forms, in four points, five points, seven points. But it's always the same things. Law is a mechanism of legal power. Uh, racism and sexism and heterosexism are all interlocking forms of oppression that must be dismantled simultaneously. You'll see that all over the literature. And so this idea that no one knows what the subject actually is, well, they do. Presumably, they, right. I mean, Crenshaw coined the term critical race theory in 1989, or so, you know, that's what she, she, she and uh, Bridges both claim that she was the one who invented that term. So surely she knows what it means and she'll tell you if you listen to her. Yeah. So let's come back to what some of the characteristics are. You just rattled off some. Let me give that's a good response. Let me give you the third objection then. Okay. Okay, so maybe it's not just a legal theory. It is this whole 
Warp and Woof. Okay, and you can read it and know what it is. But really, this is are, are you're telling me that this is the problem in our churches? You can go to the rank and file SBC PCA churches, the sort of people who like what Neil Shenvey or maybe like what Kevin DeYoung says. None of these people are reading CRT. It's not an issue for them. And in fact, the only reason we're talking about CRT is because maybe Fox News ginned it up or Christopher Rufo. It just became a conservative talking point. It just became a political wedge issue to make up CRT in order to either just get white votes or maybe even more nefarious to tap into latent, suppressed, hidden white racism. Mm -hmm. This whole thing, even if it's as bad as you say it is, it's vastly overblown. It's not the issue in our churches, and it just has been invented to try to get votes and try to divide people, and it's working, and so you should move on and talk about something else. Sure. And so I always say, I'm not going to rank heresies. I'm not going to rank problems and say, well, this is the number one threat to the the church as a whole. What do you mean the church as a whole? Obviously, everyone's in different contexts. So I actually probably would agree that some rural church in, in a deep red county of Nebraska, right? Their number one problem is probably not critical race theory. Probably. They probably don't have a lot of people in the congregation who are reading Robin D'Angelo and Abraham's Kendi and getting these ideas from the culture. Probably not. They probably have other problems. Maybe racism itself is the main problem in that church. I don't know the church. That said, there are churches who have the opposite context. If you're in a deep blue county, uh, if you're in the middle of Manhattan, if you have if your church is filled with people who are in the corporate world or in academia, this absolutely is a major problem. I'm not saying it's the worst problem. I'm just saying it is a problem. And one of the things I'm actually working on a book right now with Dr. Sawyer, Pat, uh, on critical theory broadly, which includes critical race theory, critical pedagogy, queer theory. These are all critical theories, critical social theories. Um, we explain that these ideas are everywhere. The people in your church are not getting them from reading Crenshaw or Derek Bell. They're getting them from their knitting group or their book club. And they're, and they're, and we give examples and I, I am notorious for not naming names. I'm not attacking some person, but in our book, we do go through these prominent examples of evangelical Christian leaders who are being platformed by like Christianity today and Campus Crusade for Christ crew and inner varsity and that have literally apostatized. The example I use is so glaring is Christina Cleveland, mm-hmm. who was writing a column in Christianity Today in 2016 on race, and now just came out with a book called God is a Black Woman. And it is and she has actually literally abandoned the Christian faith and now worships a being that she calls the quote sacred black feminine. It's so, and so she is now just a, openly abandoning, and she will tell. She has. She gave a, a talk in 2019 entitled, I think it's called the uh, mission, global missions at the as the heroicization of a whiteness. And in that talk, she explains how critical race theory by name is the framework through which she understands things like missions and race and justice in the church. At the time, I think she was still professing to be a Christian. Now she's not. And But you can see this happening, frankly, all over the church. 
Now, whether that's the biggest problem for your church in your context, I don't know. I don't know your church, but it is a problem, and we can't pretend it's not even there. There are examples like this that are just prominent figures whose theology has been completely shattered by these ideas. Really, really helpful. Let, let's talk about what some of the core tenets might be. And let me just throw this out and see what you think. And you can add to this, subtract to it. You can go into more depth. I've been trying to think how, how to simplify this. And so I have an, ac- an acronym. And the acronym is actually PRIDE, which I don't mean to automatically say it links with all of the... But sometimes it does. But I, I, it just happened to work that it... So here's my five words that form the acronym PRIDE. Power, intersectionality, no, I'm doing it out of order. Power, revolutionary, intersectionality, disparity, and everywhere. Let me just, the, mm-hmm. so power, you said this, that uh, the, the moral standards, the legal standards are about the lording of power of one group over another. Revolutionary, what I mean by that is the quote you gave earlier, not incrementalism, not objective standards, uh, because there is no objective standard, but what we need is not incrementalism, not just a change. We need radical in the sense of down to the very roots. It it requires a revolutionary change in how our entire society. So it's not this Western project is got most things right, slavery, racism, bad, let's change laws, change hearts. No, the whole enlightenment project mm-hmm. has been wrong. Western civilization has probably largely been wrong. So that's the RI intersectionality, which is the, the belief that you have this matrix of uh, oppressive identities or oppressor identities. So I score very highly on oppressor identities. Uh, I'm, I'm married to a woman. I'm, I'm white. Now I'm middle-aged. I just, I got all of the bad. You're sort of a mixed bag, Neil. You got a few good ones, a few bad ones. You're half Indian. And then, uh, disparity, the idea that disparities are always, so I'm talking about racial disparities are, if they don't match up with the population itself percentage, those disparities are always examples of racist structures and systems, which is Mm. how Kendi defines it. And then everywhere, meaning racism is not abnormal, it's normal. It has uh, not been eradicated. In fact, it may not have improved much at all since the 1960s. In fact, it may actually be worse because it's more subtle and it's more underground, but racism is everywhere. So power, revolution, intersectionality, disparity, and racism is everywhere. That's just my trying to get, if I had to give five words, what else would you say, or how would you double click on any of those concepts? I think that's basically right. If you look at if you look at my article, What is Critical Race Theory? You can have critical race theorists saying those things in their own words. So for example, the number one most common tenet of CRT in all the literature, it's often listed as the first tenet of CRT. Here's a quote, direct quote from uh, Words That Wound. Critical race theory recognizes that racism is endemic to American life. You know, it's this words like normal, permanent, and pervasive. Right. It's endemic, central. I'm just reading quotes. Central, endemic, permanent, and a fundamental part of defining and explaining how U.S. society functions. This is 
totally standard as the number one core tenet of critical race theory. Uh, racism is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Um, intersectionality, the idea that racism, sexism, heterosexism, ableism, classism, all these various oppressions are interlocking and they must be dismantled in a radical way. Again, Words That Wound talks about how uh, critical race theory is a quote, critical race theory measures progress by a yardstick that looks to fundamental social transformation. The interests of all people of color necessarily require not just adjustments within the established hierarchies, but a challenge to hierarchy itself. Mm -hmm. And they list gender, class, and sexual orientation as forms of these hierarchies. Anyway, so everything you said, I totally agree. The only one that is a little bit squishy is the disparities. Candy, Ibram X. Candy, the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, will say very, very clearly that race, that disparities are solely the result of discrimination. Mm -hmm. And if you deny that, if you think that even a little bit of disparities are explained some other way, any other way, then you're a racist. He says that flat out in his right. books. Uh, other critical race, and he's maybe a pop critical race theorist. Right. He talks about how he's been heavily influenced by intersectionality, how it undergirds his work. Uh, that said, other critical race theorists would pull back, would hedge on that last issue and would say, for example, I think Crenshaw says that um, they presume, it is a quote, uh, it, critical race theorists adopt a stance that presumes that racism has contributed to all contemporary manifestations of group advantage and disadvantage along racial lines. They, but they say that's a presumption given our history. But they don't go out and say, no, it's, it's all it is. But in practice, if you look at their analyses, it's right. always structural. They're, they never say, oh, well, this disparity is due to some other factor. That's, that's not even on their horizon. It's always, how does this disparity show the subtle ways, the insidious ways in which ra the racial power has operated to disadvantage people of color? So again, it, I would just pull back and say they are people that are not Kendi. Uh, Talk about it with careful, a little more nuance. A little more nuance. Yeah. But in practice, how it actually looks on the ground, it looks pretty similar. That's helpful. So, Neil, do you think, can Christians in any way appropriate the concept of structural racism, systemic injustice? Uh, if, if they can, how do they do that in the right way and what's the wrong way? Sure. So uh, I have a whole article on this topic called uh, Does Systemic Racism Exist? And I basically explain how critical race theory conceptualizes the term systemic racism and explain that it is inseparable from their views on how power operates and disparities operate. And so you, the way that they conceptualize that term, you have to reject that because they're just wrong. Uh, they basically do take the uh, approach that if you see disparities, it's the result right. of this nebulous, floating, insidious, pervasive structural systemic racism. But we can't, that's just not true. Some disparities are the result of other things. Um, and I go into that in the article. Uh, but there, I mean, I quote an economist like Thomas Sowell who showed that there's disparities of all kinds that are not the result of discrimination. Um, and then from innocuous things like birth order, right? You know, no, no one's discriminating against fifth-born children, right? But they, you know. So anyway, the... Um, what I would say is, I I do not like the phrase, eat the meat, spit out the bones. People often use that right. to describe critical race theory. My point is, it's, and I would say this is in complete seriousness, if you want to use that phrase to describe CRT, you should be equally comfortable using that same phrase, eat the meat and spit out the bones, with respect to queer theory. They're 
They're it, equally it's of the same kind. It's, uh, it's literally right. they're yes. different species of the same genus. They they are both descended from the critical theory broadly, and their their differences and their origins. I again, my whole book will deal with this. I might with that. But the bottom line is that you would pull back, you would you would recoil from saying that about queer theory, because why? Because its core tenets are so antithetical to a Christian view of reality. We can't risk, you know, leading people astray and saying, "Oh, it looks harmless." Then no, it's not harmless. In the same way, I don't think we should try to reappropriate things like systemic racism uh, for the Christian. No, I, I think what I would say is. You can affirm certain things. You can affirm, for example, that there is a legacy of historic right. racism in our country. Absolutely, there's a legacy. You can see it on maps. You can see how certain neighborhoods were, uh, were are predominantly black or Hispanic because of real estate practices like redlining. Um, you can see how wealth differences are perpetuated by inheritance and by, and they go back to like things like the, uh, again, redlining, Jim Crow, GI Bill, things like that. I mean, not directly, but just in a, in a very loose sense. Yes, there's some effect of the of history on today's disparities, but I would not want to use the term systemic racism to describe that because people will be confused. You're using a term that today means you're buying into CRT, and we can't do that. So again, I have a whole article called Does Systemic Racism Exist? where I pull apart, I disaggregate these various ideas and show when Christians can and can't use them. Yeah, that's really good because, as you said, are we talking about there are continuing legacies of racism? Undoubtedly, there are. Uh, or are we saying that every, every one of us comes into the world, and not just comes into the world, but we have, by virtue of our opportunities in the world, a whole set of, let's call them, advantages and disadvantages. And that I still think America is more of a meritocracy than almost any other place on earth, that there still is an American dream. Mm -hmm. But it's not, yeah, it's, it's simply not the case that everyone just go work hard and everyone will be rewarded. There's a whole set of things and my objection has been not that some people want to identify that sex or race may be one of those things mm -hmm. that provide advantages. My contention is sometimes they do. No doubt sometimes being a, a white male has, has been a, an advantage. And if I were trying to get a tenure track position at a secular university, it would undoubtedly not be right. an advantage. Uh, Thomas Sowell's phrase, the quest for cosmic justice. Mm -hmm. If we were God, we could understand how everything has contributed. So there are, I have no problem saying I have privileges. I had my parents who love each other. I was raised in a safe neighborhood. I went to a good public school. Lots of advantages such that if I had made a failure of my life, uh, I would have had to try hard to have failed, where some people have to try very, very hard to succeed. That is right. undoubtedly true. And so Christians ought to be able to recognize that and speak in that way. But the danger with structural racism, systemic racism, as you say, or injustice, is it's borrowed from these other conceptual worldviews. And while some people are quick to just slap Marxist label on everything. Mm -hmm. It is true that this it, this is downstream from a Marxist view, which had to do with class oppression. Right. 
And then this has a different kind of racial oppression. And then you add the intersectionality and there's also sexual or orientation mm-hmm. oppression. So it it is related to a Marxist way of looking at things. Uh, I don't know if you've read, uh, if you've gotten your hands on Edward uh, Fazer's new book, All One in Christ, A Catholic Critique of Racism and Critical Race Theory. I have not yet. Yeah, it just came out. It's 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 short. It would he's reading all the same stuff you are, and it's you know obviously a Catholic critique. But one of the the uh, phrases he uses, which was helpful, he says uh, often critical race theorists are guilty of the fallacy of hypostatization. So w- what he means is giving personal agency to impersonal, ambiguous forces. So mm-hmm. for example. You could just look and say uh, a, the average baseball player in America, I don't know, pulling it out, you know, gets paid $2 million a year, where the average teacher's salary is $45,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And then somebody says, I don't want to live in an economic system that values baseball players at $2 million a year right. and values teachers. Which says that's the hypostatization that is giving a hypostasis, giving a, a an identity, a, you might say, a substantiation, personalizing impersonal forces, when actually there is no great and powerful Oz behind the scenes <laughs> that's saying we value baseball players you know, 50 times more than we value teachers. And actually, if you looked at that, you'd realize, well, the reason baseball players make that much is because there's only a few hundred of them Mm -hmm. that can do this at this level in the whole country. And there are thousands and ten thousands of teachers who do this. So it's a it's a supply and demand. Uh, And that was very helpful because I think the the systemic social racism and justice often takes Forces that, whether good or bad, are the product of so many historical, cultural, free, personal choices and makes it into something. I I sometimes reference a line from Mo, the bartender on The Simpsons, (laughs) where he says to Homer, you know what I blame this on the breakdown of? Society. (laughs) That's just sort of the answer. This society has done this mm-hmm. how, how do you see that how do you respond to that and any other before we have to bring this to a close any other core problems that christians should recognize with crt yeah i, I agree that there is a some people call it the reification fallacy yeah, where just, right. they, make, they make real they make concrete these abstract concepts so an example i thought of when you're talking is whiteness Whiteness is like this force, and actually people even talk about it this way. Whiteness is like a toxic gas that seeps into everything. It's just around you. It's, it's in the air. You breathe it. You, it seeps into your veins, and, and it's, make, it's almost the way the Christians talk about the demonic or the world, right? It's like it's a system that we're in, the matrix from the movie. But they, 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 they and again, I'll talk about this in the book with Pat, but in some ways, in some ways, the reason that this ideology of critical theory broadly, you know, queer theory, critical race theory, decolonial theory, all these, the reason it has a purchase on the human soul is that it's actually um, 
a parody of Christianity. Right. It's a cosmic battle between good and evil, and there's evil all around. You have to purify yourself from the world, and, and the way to do that is through cleansing yourself, divesting yourself of your whiteness and your male privilege, and you can do these things and feel pure and clean, and you're, not, you're on the, the, the light side of lightness and goodness. You're there the are right priests, and there are sacred texts, and there's all, all of and, that. And, uh, we go, and, we, and we go through, but uh, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose in their book Cynical Theories who are atheists talk about how there are, are now there's now a gospel of social justice with holy texts and a priesthood. <laughs> so and Carl Truman, lots of people, David French, Elizabeth Corey, have talked about how this whatever you want to call it, critical theory, intersectionality, there's no name for it, unfortunately. But whatever it is, it's functioning like a pseudo-religion and it's meeting people's spiritual needs. That's why, one of the reasons why it's so effective. It's it's speaking our heart's language and our need mm. for justification. How yeah. can you be pure? How can a man keep his way pure? By washing himself according to Robin D'Angelo's word. Right? That that's that's the, essentially the message they're telling you. And so anyway, I I do think that that is part of it. And there, but there are many it's not just there's one problem. People often say it was just a Marxist view of race. And I'm like sort of to a zeroth order approximation, but if you look at the actual history you're drawing on postmodernism, mm-hmm. on radical black thought, on womanist thought, on and so it. In the end, it doesn't really matter. It's just it's wrong. But understanding how this is drawn on all these different schools of thought can help you understand the get in their heads. Essentially, why do they think that I can't know the truth because I'm a white male, uh, or you at least? But we'll be cut. Here's right. why they're drawing on the work of so and so. Anyway, so. Yes, I do agree with with Phaser, uh, and there, but there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, and I'll just finally say one thing: I, I really, the one book I'd recommend in a bad way to people is uh, Oslam Sensoy and Robin D'Angelo's book. Is everyone really equal? Mm. I have a ton of quotes from it on my website, but if I I actually wrote a couple of years ago when I first read it, it was like discovering the dead body at the bottom of the well that was poisoning the town's water supply. It is just a, it, and they, I mean, it's explaining what they call critical social justice is, its core tenets, how it applies to race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, etc. They have diagrams of different matrices of oppression, but it's, if you want to understand in their own words what they believe about reality, read that book by Osman uh, Sensoy and D'Angelo. Um, it's good. It's really helpful. But yeah, that's, and I just, I'm just pleading with Christians Take this problem seriously. Please do not just dismiss it as, oh, it's a bunch of culture warriors. No. The reason I got into this issue as a theoretical chemist was because I was seeing these ideas destroy the lives of people that I knew personally. I was seeing it shipwreck their their theology. That's why I care about it so much. And it's not because I am here to get you to vote for Trump in 2020 or whoever's running. I'm not, that's not my goal. My goal is to make sure that your theology is rooted in what the Bible teaches and is not um, sh- destroyed by these unbiblical ideas. Yeah, that's really good. L- let's just finish it this way. I'm thinking of two types of people who are maybe listening to this. And maybe there's someone, probably if they're listening to us, they're inclined to to agree. That's why they've uh, found their way to this podcast. So I'm thinking of the person that maybe agrees and is really stirred up, fired up. This is a huge problem. This is everywhere. I'm going to my school board. I'm going to the library. This is, uh, is there anything to that person who's already convinced this is a big, maybe one of the 
central issues of our time and in the church, and they see it everywhere. Is there anything you think we need to say to that person, particularly sort of a pastoral word to their heart, the person who's really, really already convinced this is a major, major issue? Yeah. The first thing I'd say is, I agree with you. That the first thing I, was, I would not say, no, no, hold on, hold on. I would just say, yes, you are totally right. You are seeing that a very pernicious element of our culture that we must expose and, and reject. I agree. The second thing I say would be that you should definitely try to understand the people, the Christians, evangelical Christians, your brothers and sisters in Christ, who are being seduced. I mean that word. They're seduced by these ideas. Try to understand them. I don't say you should agree with them. I don't say you shouldn't speak out against these ideas. Try to understand them. And then the last thing is try to win them. Now, there's a point at which the cancer is so bad you have to amputate the limb. There is a point. I'm not denying that. There's a point where you say, this person is beyond my reach, but also they're hurting other people. We have to simply say, you cannot follow this person because they're just so enamored of these ideas. But there are other people who even today are still on the fence. Try to win them. And again, not by downplaying the problem, but by saying, I want to understand you, talk to me. How can I convince you that I do care about racism? I do hate it. There are things that I do have to learn, maybe, that I have never thought about before. I'm totally open to that. But how can I convince you that really, I'm not doing this because I hate you or because I'm just a white supremacist. I'm doing this because I genuinely care about you and the church. So that's that's what I'd say. But I think people sometimes, they hear that word of admonition and they say, you're just trying to downplay these problems. You're trying to be a third way. No, I'm saying I agree with you, but we still want to win people, right? These are If these are your brothers and sisters in Christ, they're family. You don't want them to wander away. You want to bring them back to what solid biblical understandings right. of these ideas. So and, that's, and, that's my concern. And the way to do that is, and you've modeled this well, carefully read, quote, uh, don't turn up the temperature unnecessarily. Don't shame people. That mm-hmm. rarely works in getting people to agree with you. Again, that may be sort of the amputation approach, but while mm-hmm. there's still a chance to to reason, and I, I, I think you would agree with this, uh, not to slam every attempt at, I mean, good gospel attempt at racial reconciliation, or your pastor quoted from MLK in a sermon, <laughs> or mentioned that actually slavery was really bad. It was not a benign institution. And actually, white people did bad things in the past. These sort of things that I think used to just be, no one got upset about. I think because CRT Mm -hmm. is so pernicious and has become so pervasive, sometimes we've lost the ability to say, no, the gospel should bring people to, to use those words. It does not make you guilty of of CRT. Uh, so so let's go after what the problem is, what it isn't. And so here's my follow-up question, and you already hit on it. So if that's the person who's really fired up and we want to affirm you're seeing the, the problem, let, let's try to win people. What about the person who's listening to this? And, you know, they're not, they're not way off and, uh, you know, smashing windows or something, but, but they're not really convinced and they're sort of ah i know you guys are you guys are really conservative and you're into this but uh you know i don't think it's quite that bad and uh actually 
they do find a a lot of meaning and purpose in combating racism. And they mm. see that it's a major problem in our history and it's a real passion for theirs. What sort of final word would you give to them? And again, I would say you need to listen to people on the other side. This is for both sides. Yeah. We're never, there's no, there's no, especially with other Christian, other genuine believers when is listening not allowed? You're always supposed to listen. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. I'm not saying agree. I'm saying listen. So for the people that are sympathetic to quote-unquote wokeness or critical race theory, I would say, well, at least listen. Heed, listen to the, the people telling you this is really bad stuff. And then I do think there's a lot of, because I'm obviously on the very alarmed side of things, um, I think that there is a lot of root, uh, not root, need for people to be scared straight in a sense. Uh, and I would say f- the book I'd recommend, number one, would be Christina Cleveland's God is a Black Woman. Read that book that she just published this year and realize this is someone who literally five years ago was being platformed by Lifeway, Christianity Today, InterVarsity, crew, all these major, major conservative evangelical organizations were platforming her. And now five years later, she is saying things like, above all else, we need to be uh, not be transphobic because if God is a black woman, then she is definitely a black trans woman. That's actually a line from her book. That's five years. And that's just one example. But read the entire book and just see exactly how heretical her, her, her beliefs are today and how she attributes that whole way of thinking to critical mm. race theory. And that you're like, well, that's just one. I'm Unfortunately, she's not the only one. And again, I'm notorious sometimes for not naming names, but there are many figures like that who are on that same trajectory right now. And it's not about rejecting individual bad apples. It's about recognizing the ideas behind that trajectory and saying those ideas are false and drawing a line in the sand and say, I cannot affirm these ideas. That's really important. And if you ignore that warning, you're going to be pushed in that same direction. Yeah. Very serious. It's a good word. And as you said earlier, Neil, it's not even, it is, it is the, the insta the intellectual ideas, but most, I mean, human beings were driven by our hearts mm-hmm. and it is on an even deeper level, often a, a, a rival animating spirit. I think mm-hmm. that's what you see. And so you, you do find what used to kind of get you up in the morning as a Christian, sort of what you see about the problem in the world, the solution in the world. You said at the very beginning, talking about your apologetics mm-hmm. book. So when Christians say the problem is sin and an offended God, therefore the answer is we need a savior. Oh, yeah. there's lots of other problems, mm-hmm. obviously, but that's the fundamental one and the one from which all others flow. When you set up a, a, a rival setup, you may still hold to the same statement of faith somewhere mm-hmm. in the attic and you say, well, I don't deny any of those things. But your your animating, your energizing spirit is now the problem is environmental degradation. The problem is yeah. the, the sort of oppression that instead of moving vertical, David saying against you only have I sinned, even though he sinned against almost everyone, it moves entirely horizontal. Mm-hmm. And so the offendedness is just here. And when that line goes there, then you have 
good guys and bad guys in our right. world, oppressors and oppressors, instead of fundamentally we're sinners and we're in need of a savior. And that that's what I would want. I don't want people to stop being passionate about, uh, you know, speaking out against racism. The Bible gives no quarter to, to racism or, uh, you know, people in the majority to have open, humble hearts to consider ways, things they don't see. All of that is what we should do as Christians. As you said, mm-hmm. we should be quick to listen uh, and slow to anger, slow to speak. But we ought to be discerning, and this is pastorally the, the concern that pastors ought to have. We ought to be concerning when young people in particular, but it's not just young people, find in their hearts the sort of rival energy. They don't quite call it a, a religion, but what's getting them most animated, most exercised is something other than this old, old gospel story. And mm-hmm. of all the people out there who have just done a yeoman's work on reading this stuff, digesting this stuff, publishing this stuff, um, you, you've done such a great job, Neil. So thank you for that. Blessings to you and Pat as you work on this really important book that's going to talk about CRT, but also critical theory more broadly. I know you're reading a lot of the gender and sexuality stuff. And then once again, just to mention the apologetics book, Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. Neil, I hope since we're just a few hours down the road, we can be in the same place at the same time. But thank you for coming on the program this morning. Great. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, Until next time, glorify God, enjoy Him forever, and read a good book.